Can anybody guess what today's theme is? <laughs> this is probably not one of those Sundays where you are left guessing what the main point of this morning is. But today is a day that we have been anticipating for three weeks because today we see the conclusion of this incredible story of long ago, the Old Testament book of Ruth. This is our fourth and final message, at least for a while, from the Old Testament book of Ruth. An incredible short story that is tucked away, hidden between Judges and 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, about a quarter of the way through your Bible. So as you're turning to Ruth, I want to very briefly summarize where we've come from and where we are this morning, because as a story, this story continually builds on itself. And so we started out with a family of four, Elimelech and his wife Naomi, moved from Bethlehem to the foreign land of Moab with their two sons, Malon and Kilion, because there was famine in the land of Israel. And while they were there, the two sons married Moabite women. And remember, this is not regarded as a positive thing. Moabites had a history of immorality and of fighting with God's people. In fact, on one particular occasion, God had struck down 24,000 Israelites through a plague because they had been led astray into immorality by Moabite women. And as if that situation was not already bad enough, things continued to get increasingly worse from there. While they were in Moab, Elimelech, the father of the family, died. And shortly thereafter, his two sons, Malon and Kilion, also died, neither of which had any children. And so Naomi is left in the foreign land of Moab with no husband, no children, in a day and a time when family was everything. And so she convinces one daughter-in-law, Orpah, to stay in Moab with her family, to remarry, to rebuild a name for herself. But she cannot convince Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, to stay. And Ruth promises to stay with Naomi and to cling to her and to go wherever she goes. And that's exactly what she does. And she makes this return trip home to Bethlehem with her bitter mother-in-law, Naomi. Now in that day, widows without children, especially those without children, without sons, were in need of two very important things. Number one, food, basic provision, and number two, family. The more important need being family, somebody to to carry on the name of the deceased, somebody to carry on Elimelech's name in that day. And so up to this point, we've seen the first need provided for, 
abundantly. We saw in chapter 2 how God worked through this man Boaz, who, by the way, was a relative of Elimelech, worked through him to pour out blessing after blessing on Ruth as she gleaned in his field, as she gathered more than enough throughout the entire harvest season, the entire barley and wheat harvest season. And then in chapter 3, we saw Ruth carry out Naomi, her mother-in-law's plan, to go to Boaz at night, to lie down next to him on the threshing floor after he had finished his work for the day, and to engage in this risky and somewhat scandalous marriage proposal. Let's just say I'm kind of, I'm kind of glad that Lynn had chapter 3. And Boaz responds with kindness and with God-like character, as he has done up until now, and promises to indeed marry and to redeem Ruth if the law will allow it. Now, we've been told he's a relative, but the only problem is there is a nearer relative, a nearer kinsman, to Elimelech. And so this is where we find ourselves in the story this morning. The tension is high. It's like watching a good movie or reading a good book where things have increasingly been on the upswing. But the only problem is this. Through Boaz's words in chapter 3, we just learned that Boaz, this knight in shining armor, may not be able to redeem Ruth after all. And so we're waiting to see how this story is going to unfold. Is it going to be the happily ever after or not? Look with me at Ruth chapter 4 this morning. Ruth chapter 4 verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there. When the kinsman redeemer... Now stop there. Pause for a minute. This is huge. We've already seen this concept of kinsman redeemer introduced in this book. And remember that we said that a kinsman redeemer was the nearest adult male relative whose express purpose as kinsman redeemer was to redeem or to restore persons, property, or lineage. And so this was the job. This was something that God had set up in the Old Testament. And I want to mention two Old Testament references to the kinsman redeemer because this is absolutely crucial for our understanding of this chapter and not only this chapter but the entire book of Ruth. So we don't want to miss it this morning. The first comes from Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25 verses 24 and 25. Now this is God's law to his people in the Old Testament. This is God's design, his setup, and this is what he, what he told them. Throughout the country that you hold as a possession... You must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countryman has sold. In other words, when you get in hardship and you have to sell your land because you're poor and you need the money, then you as a countryman, as a relative, are to step in and to buy it back, to redeem those that need the help. And the second reference comes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25 as well. So Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. This is what God's word reads. If brothers are living together 
and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law. So in short, the design of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament was to perpetuate the name of the dead through property, through persons, through lineage. And so this is, this is where we find ourselves in this story. Boaz has, has taken the initiative. He has gone out to seek out this nearer kinsman because he's a man of character, a man of kindness that wants to resolve this issue and to resolve it quickly. And so he goes out. We read in verse 1, he, when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Now the NIV translation from which I'm reading this morning does not do verse 1 justice. It's not wrong, but it doesn't reveal the full extent of what's taking place here. And so I want to try to bring that out. When this says in verse 1, when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, this would be much better translated. Just then the kinsman redeemer, or look, or and behold, the kinsman redeemer came along. The point being, just like we saw in chapter 2, when Ruth just happened to end up in Boaz's field, that God is working, providentially working, behind the scenes to care for and to provide for and to bless and to control the circumstances in the life of Ruth during this time. This was not chance or coincidence that the right man just happened to come along at the right time. And we don't need to miss that this morning. As Jerry Hood put it, this is God's time. This is God's time in chapter 4, verse 1. And look at what Boaz says to this near kinsman. He says, come over here, my friend, and sit down. Now, this is intentional, again, on the part of the author, on the part of the narrator. Because what he's saying here, he's not mentioning the man's name. He's communicating uh, like we would communicate today when we refer to someone as Mr. So-and-so or Mr. What's-his-name. And in fact, I heard one of, our, one of our youth use this phrase Wednesday night to refer to a, a teacher that that particular student wasn't all that fond of, and I won't say who it was, uh, but they refer to this teacher as Mr. What's-His-Name. This, this is not a positive reference. Now, sometimes we, we, we say that not to be derogatory just because maybe we forgot someone's name, but that is not what is taking place here in Ruth chapter 4. The author is intentional. A contrast is being set up because throughout the story, we have intentionally seen the names of Boaz and Ruth repeated time and time again. And then all of a sudden we get to this other guy and we don't even get his name. And it continues from there to set up this contrast between the character of Boaz and this other nearer kinsman. So let's pick up the story in verse 2. Boaz then took ten of the elders of the town and said... Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. 
I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. And at this point in the story, if we've been following along, and if we found ourselves drawn into this story, we are thinking, Boaz, what in the world are you doing? What are you doing? You are a hero in this story. You're the one who has time after time shown kindness and blessing to Ruth and through Ruth to Naomi, these poor widows that are in need of help, need of redemption. What are you doing? You're just going to put it out there for this unnamed kinsman who up until this point we've heard nothing about, who no doubt knows that Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem because of the commotion that we heard or that we read about in chapter 1, yet he has done nothing to step in and provide, and all of a sudden, Boaz, you're just going to throw it out there for him, and our hearts sink. This is like when we watch a good movie, and things are going well, and then all of a sudden, we're swiped off our feet by some sort of tragedy. And it reminds me of that excellent movie that came out in 2000, called Remember the Titans. And in Remember the Titans, this high school football team in Virginia overcomes all sorts of obstacles. A new coach, uh, the first year of school integration between blacks and whites. This is the early 1970s. Rampant racism, opposition from, from coaches, or not from coaches, opposition from parents, from teachers, from students, from football players from the community, even from the school board, and they overcome all of that and have an undefeated regular season. They don't lose a game. And they find themselves in the playoffs, the state tournament. They make it to the semifinals, and they barely squeak by with a victory. And this is the, the highlight of the movie up until now. There's, there's good music playing in the background. Everybody's celebrating. Everybody's rejoicing. How did they overcome these odds? And then all of a sudden, the team captain, Gary Bertier, pulls into an intersection and is nailed by a truck and finds himself in the hospital paralyzed. Right before the championship game, their goal all season, to win a championship. And they're sideswiped, we're sideswiped as as viewers, as watchers, with this this overwhelming tragedy. What's going to happen? How is this going to unfold? And in case you haven't seen that movie, I will not tell you how it unfolds. But this is like, this is like where we find ourselves in the book of Ruth. Things have been going incredible. And then all of a sudden, tragedy enters the picture because this other guy, Mr. So-and-so, is going to redeem Ruth and Naomi. But Boaz was a smart guy. And he knew exactly what he was doing. Look with me now at verse 5. We'll see how in verse 5. Then Boaz said, 
On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Verse 6, at this the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And so as soon as Boaz mentions the other part of this redemption process, as soon as he mentions Ruth, the Moabitess, the dead man's widow, this unnamed kinsman immediately declines, saying that he might endanger his own estate. And what he's communicating there is that, that if, if he redeems Ruth, and they have a son, then the son will inherit this property that he's, that he's buying. This was a win-win situation on his own because what Naomi was selling was probably not actually the field, but the rights to the property. And so he could use it, and she could be redeemed. It was a win-win situation until Ruth the Moabitess entered the picture, and he declines. Now, this unnamed kinsman serves the same function in this story as Orpah did in chapter 1. Remember Orpah, the other daughter-in-law? She acts in her own self-interest, and understandably so, in chapter 1, in order to shine a light on the character and the kindness of Ruth toward her mother-in-law, Naomi. And right here in chapter 4, this unnamed kinsman serves the same focus because he acts in his own self-interest in order for us not to miss it, the kindness and the character of Boaz toward Ruth and Naomi. And Boaz's kindness just continues His self-emptying rather than his own self-absorbance continues as the rest of the story unfolds. So let's pick it back up in verse 7. Verse 7 reads, Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Verse 8, So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Verse 11. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now all the while, throughout this story, we have seen God providentially working behind the scenes. Even though his name, Yahweh, the Lord, has not has not been mentioned very many times. He has been clearly working, orchestrating events behind the scenes for the good of Ruth and Naomi and for his own glory. But right here, we see that he is very specifically mentioned. He is mentioned 
Excuse me, he's mentioned in the, next, in the next verse, verse 13, and we'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself. I apologize. But right here, notice, notice that here in verse 9, that, that the author, through Boaz, mentions the whole family. Mentions Naomi, mentions Elimelech, mentions Malon, mentions Kilion, and Ruth the Moabitess emphasizing restoration of the entire family, the entire clan through this redemption that takes place through Boaz. And even though this unnamed kinsman, because of his self-interest and lack of character in this scenario, will not be remembered, his name is, is nowhere here, it's nowhere in Scripture, the name of the dead, Elimelech, And Malon, verse 10, will be remembered so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Things are looking good again. Boaz is back in the picture. He has agreed to marry, to take Ruth on as his wife. And up until this point in the story, things have been unfolding fairly slowly. And you've probably noticed this. We've moved rather slowly. There are a lot of details, important details nevertheless, that we have tried to to bring out and to feel the tension of the story that's taking place. But all of a sudden, in the very next verse, verse 13, things begin to move much more quickly. At least nine months, at least nine months are packed into one verse. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, And she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Verse 15, He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him Birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And this is where I tried to jump to just a minute ago. But all throughout this story, God has been working. But right here, we definitely don't want to miss it. In verse 13, the author, the narrator, the storyteller is very specific that it was the Lord. It was Yahweh. It was the God of Israel that enabled Ruth, the Moabitess, to immediately conceive this child. And all of a sudden, 10 years of barrenness in Moab are contrasted with immediate conception for Ruth, the Moabitess. God is at work. And in chapter 2, Boaz prayed for, he prayed for Ruth. The first day he met her, he was introduced to her, and he was, he was impressed by her kindness toward her mother-in-law. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, he prayed this prayer for her. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And now all of a sudden, Boaz is the very one that God uses to answer Boaz's very prayer for Ruth. And notice here in verses 14 and 15 that the town is excited. Everyone's excited because this son, this child has been born. 
to Ruth. And they're excited not just for Ruth and not just for Boaz, but they're also excited for Naomi. And they say that this child, not Boaz, this child on another level will serve as the kinsman redeemer for Naomi herself. Because in her old age, he will serve as provider, as protector, as caregiver for his elderly grandmother. Now Ruth, throughout this story, has been characterized by low status. I think you know this. I think you've picked up on this because it's been over and over and over again. But back in chapter 1, we're introduced to Ruth as Ruth the Moabitess. Chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 22. Ruth the Moabitess. Chapter 2, verse 2. Ruth the Moabitess. Chapter 2, verse 6, the Moabitess from Moab. Chapter 2, verse 13, she's regarded as not even, not even a servant to Boaz, this Israelite man of standing. Chapter 3, verse 5, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 9, she's a servant to Boaz. And even again here in chapter 4, verse 5, she is Ruth the Moabitess. And now all of a sudden in chapter 4, verse 13, she is no longer servant. She is no longer Ruth the Moabitess. She is Ruth the wife of Boaz, this Israelite man of standing. This story for us, as we step back and look at the beginning and the end, we see that this story, the book of Ruth, is a story of resurrection. It opened with death and bitterness, emptiness, and it concludes with new life and fullness. This is an incredible display of the love of God through the man Boaz. But as good as this is, this is not even the end. There's more to it. It's more than just a nice story of God's love, of God's care, of God's mercy, of his kindness through this man. Because we're told in verse 17 that this son they named Obed. And Obed became the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. King David, the greatest king in Israelite history, the one that the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. God used Ruth the Moabitess in the line of King David himself. Had it not been for her, King David would never have even been born. And the character of Ruth and the character of Boaz throughout this story stands out sharply to those around them. Because remember, the story of the book of Ruth took place during the time when the judges ruled. When everyone else was doing what was right in their own eyes, Ruth served the the interest of her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Boaz served the interest of Ruth and Naomi together. And through them and their faithfulness, God used them not only to, to bless them, but to bless an entire nation through their offspring. Because through David, the entire nation was blessed by God and the work of God that he did for his people. Let's conclude the story. Verses 18 and following. 
And here we've, we close this story with a genealogy that points back and forward with the importance of Boaz and Ruth in the middle. This then, verse 18, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. God is a God of redemption. Can't you hear Ruth the Moabitess saying now? All my life I have been called unworthy, named by the voice of my shame and regret. But when I, hisper, when I hear you whisper, child, lift up your head. I remember, oh God, you're not done with me yet because I am redeemed. You set me free. So I'll shake off these heavy chains, wipe away every stain. Now I'm not who I used to be. I wanted to sing that this morning. But if I had sung that, David would have run me off the stage, and the rest of you would have had a headache for the rest of the day. So um, you're welcome for that. But more importantly, more importantly than seeing Ruth say those words, can you say those words this morning? Can you say, I am redeemed Because, God, you set me free. Because this morning, as people that live on this side of the entire compilation of the Word of God, of the Bible, of the Scriptures, we read this story through a different lens. And it gets even better than this. Now, I know some of you have checked out by now, but this is is important. Check back in for this. Trust me, you don't want to miss this. Look in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. This is a passage of scripture that we don't read very often because it's a long list of names, but it's important. It's in the Bible. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Verse 3, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Sound familiar? Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Skip down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Rahab, the prostitute. Ruth, the Moabitess. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, the adulterer. Mary, the peasant girl, From Nazareth. These people were providentially included in and intentionally mentioned in the Word of God for their role 
in the genealogy of the Son of God and Savior of the world. God often uses ordinary and even less than ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purpose. God is a God of redemption. And this story of Ruth, this short story, is a beautiful story. But it is only a story within a much larger and much grander and much more beautiful story. The story of God redeeming his people through Jesus Christ. Boaz redeemed Ruth because he had the capability and the desirability. But Ruth is not the only one, ladies and gentlemen, that has ever been in need of redemption. The Bible teaches that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us and every human being to ever live on this earth has turned our backs and has rebelled against God Almighty, a perfect and holy yet compassionate and merciful God. And because of that, we are in... in, We deserve to be judged by God. We deserve the wrath of God because we've turned our backs on God. Yet there is one who has the capability and the desirability to redeem us. And his name is Jesus Christ. And Boaz only points to this greater redeemer, the ultimate kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, the son of God himself. Scripture speaks of this one as the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Jesus Christ is the only one who is able to pay the price for our salvation. And Jesus Christ is the only one who is able to guarantee our restoration. God is a God of redemption. And as we draw this story to a close, and as we draw this series of messages to a close, there are are a number of things that we could conclude, that we can draw from this story, but I don't want you to miss the fact that God is a God of redemption. This is the Redeemer that we gather together to worship today and to praise today and to hear from today. A God who desires to redeem the hurting and the broken and the sinners and the lost. A God who loves us. And for all of us sitting here this morning, we can draw from this story that we ought to trust fully in the sovereign timing and working of God. Now, there are likely a number in this room this morning that are experiencing very dark and difficult times in your life. But know this, that the word of God teaches that God works in all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, the story of Ruth reminds us to remain faithful to God, to continue to strive to display the character and the loving kindness of God 
to the world, just like Boaz and Ruth did, even when it seems illogical, impractical, and unrealistic. And lastly, for those that, that are not followers of Jesus Christ, this story through the lens of the greater story of God's word urges you, compels you, pleads with you to trust in Jesus Christ for redemption today. Through the blood that was spilled on the cross, you and I have salvation and forgiveness, new life and restoration. Turn to God. Cry out to God in your sin, turning from it and toward God for life, true life, eternal life. God is a God of redemption. Can you say this morning with Ruth the Moabitess and with Naomi the elderly widow, I am redeemed. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day, this honor and privilege to gather together in the name of and in the presence of the great Redeemer. Lord, may you continue to remind us of your love for us and your providential working throughout history and throughout our lives in order to draw us to yourself so that we might know you and have life in you. Thank you, Lord, that you are a redeeming God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As David comes and leads us in a hymn of response, you respond to to the word of God and the Spirit's leaning, working in your life in whatever way that is. If you've never trusted in Christ for salvation and you have questions about that, please come and take us by the hand. If you've done so and you've never shared that with the church, you come and we'll celebrate with you this morning. Let's stand and sing together.